There is someone I would like you to meet and greet from a distance, and that is Brian Marcioni. Brian, why don't you come up? So Brian has preached here a couple times at the harbor. He's a regular speaker at our training schools, uh, Navigate, and then also down in the city. And uh, it's just an honor to have him here. Uh, Brian is an electrical engineer at the moment by trade, uh, but he is phenomenal at a lot of other things that I won't go down the list at the moment, but he loves Jesus a lot, has walked with the group of churches that the harbor's a part of for for many years, and uh, he's a great student of God's Word. And so that's a, a wonderful combination that we get to glean from and draw from. So he's going to move us along uh, the next step through our Red Letter Edition series as we're looking at the words of Jesus and what we can really learn from that and how it can affect our lives this summer. So I'll, I'll just pray for him, and then Brian will take it away. Lord, thank you for this man whose uh, life is just really submitted to you. We thank you for the amazing father that he is and the way that he represents you as our heavenly father so well. He really does. And so as he, as he communicates what it is that's on your heart uh, to us this morning, uh, we just pray for grace in that process. And we pray that you would help us, uh, each one of us listening, to uh, be hearing the words that you would have us hear and that you would be speaking to us. So, Holy Spirit, we ask for help in that exchange, uh, that we would just get exactly what we need, because uh, you know how to encourage us. You know uh, the places we need discernment and wisdom in our lives. And so, uh, we just thank you for Brian, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Most of the staff here knows that I'm always so honored and excited to come up here to the harbor. Few things brighten my day quite as much as when I see an email with the harbor.net in it. Oh, yes! Sweet! So, I'm super excited to be here, and thank you so much for having me. It's really, it really is an honor. I'm very blessed. So, the great historian, some of you may have heard of him, his name is Kenneth Scott Latterette. He wrote this. He said, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. So who is he? Who is Jesus? I mean, has any other question evoked so much controversy so much debate, so much emotion, so much thought for as many millennia as this one. I mean, do you want to suck all the air out of a room? Just stand up in the middle of the room in mixed company, not among your church friends, and ask the question, who is Jesus? In 2014 alone, and in English alone, over 1,800 new books have been published with Jesus in the title and the year's only half over. So who is he? Jesus' own disciples asked the same question. And in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, we find some of Jesus' closest friends asking, who is this? So turn with me, please, if you have your Bibles, to Mark chapter 4. 
We're going to start in verse 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark is the second book in your New Testament. We're in chapter 4, verse 35. And the text here is picking up after Jesus had just been teaching for a day or a series of days by the Sea of Galilee. And the day is about to draw to a close. So listen carefully with me to what God's word says. It says, That day, when evening came, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The disciples literally in this text, they fear a great fear. And they wonder out loud, Who is this man? And our text is really going to answer this question for us. But before we get to the question, we need to ask ourselves, you know, did this really even happen? I mean, I've lived in New England for just about all my life. I've been through my share of nor'easters, blizzards, hurricanes, thunder, snow, and all these odd things that happen here up in New England. And not once have I witnessed a person stand in the midst of such a storm and command it to stop. If I did... I think it was a joke or an expression of frustration or something like that. I certainly wouldn't expect the storm to listen to that somebody. So when I read a text like this, when we read a text like this, if we're honest, we ask ourselves, did this this really happen? Is this an exaggeration? Is it a metaphor? Is it a fabrication? Well, nothing suggests that we shouldn't take this text at faith value, face value. To begin with, all the basic history is consistent with what we understand of the period. Uh, Due to the geography of the area, of the Sea of Galilee, sudden storms could happen uh, very frequently and without warning because of the way it's kind of in this big valley. These cold fronts could come over the valley and stir up these storms with almost no warning. And these boats, which were typically between 20 and 30 feet long, often placed ballasts along the bottom of the boat. And so this was probably the cushion Jesus was sleeping on. And the stern would have been the calmest area. It's the most sheltered area of the boat. It's the calmest. Usually the captain's quarters are in the stern. And it's out of the way of the others up on the deck. So no detail really appears to stick out as a fabrication. And the story just doesn't read like a myth. I mean, there's there's no fantastic language here. Lightning doesn't shoot out of Jesus's fingers or something like that. The text reads very matter-of-fact. Before he was a Christian, C.S. Lewis, who, who devoted a lifetime of study to antiquated literature, 
uh, came to the same conclusion. He said that he had become too experienced in literary criticism to take the Gospels as myth. They don't have what he called the mythical taste to them. Even more, in verse 36, Mark mentions that there were other boats with them. So in other words, there were other witnesses to the storm. Numerous others could attest to the fact that a great storm came but was suddenly still. There's nothing described in this text that contradicts common knowledge at the time or that others couldn't also attest to. So maybe Jesus just got lucky, right? I mean, maybe the weather was going to die down anyway, and he happened to say this at just the right time, right? He hit the jackpot. What a coincidence. If so, then Jesus is either a nut job or he's a terrible deceiver. I mean, if he actually thinks his words could have some effect on the wind and the waves, but they really don't, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. No human has effect over wind and waves. But if he knows that his words don't have any effect, but he does it anyway, he's putting on a show. He's a deceiver. And especially since he rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith, this makes him a fraud and a false teacher. And given the rest of what we know about Jesus in his life, that's a really hard sell to say that he's a deceiver and a fraud. But what if Mark and the other disciples just made the whole thing up They came up with a story after the fact to fit their own agenda. Well, Mark has no motive for depicting Jesus this way. A follower of Jesus during Mark's time could expect persecution, not power. Mark couldn't have been seeking power or prestige through Jesus. He could be excommunicated from the synagogue, persecuted by his own leaders in the Roman government, disowned by his family and friends. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Hey, guys, I got a great idea. Let's lose everything we have. Let's endure suffering and persecution from every stratum of society, gain nothing, and do it all for something that we don't really believe. And while we're at it, let's make ourselves look like faithless cowards in the stories that we make up. Who's with me? Right? It just just doesn't make sense. That's a lunatic. And this is not the writing of a lunatic. So we could go on. And talk about manuscript evidence and all the rest. But in the end, there's just no escaping this text. We have to take Mark at his word and deal with this. So what is he saying? What is Mark saying? I want to submit to you that this text is showing us two things. There's a practical point and a theological point. And we're in the middle of this red letter series. Taking a look at the words of Jesus. And while we know these words have no more or less authority and significance than the whole Bible, it's all God's word, we're going to zoom in on them here and look at Jesus' rebuke, especially. So the context, the disciples are panicking. I mean, they they think they're goners. They think they're going to die. Don't you care if we drown, they ask in verse 38? And we can give them some grace here. Because the sea, now, but especially then, is a terrifying thing, especially in Jesus' time. In Jewish and pagan thinking alike, the sea is associated with chaotic, dangerous, terrifying forces. It's an unpredictable, untamable, ferocious, undiscriminating force of nature. And you can actually see lots of this in the the kind of imagery that's, that's throughout the Bible. Sea often represents this 
this wild force. And so boats rarely ventured that far off the shore. And if you got caught in a storm, you were in deep trouble. I mean, there's no life jackets, no radio, no GPS, no Coast Guard. Very few people could swim. And so right after this, Jesus asks, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? In other words, guys, why are you reacting this way? The implication is, if they had faith, they would be acting differently. And this is the practical point. The degree of your faith determines your disposition. The degree of your faith determines your disposition. And we know this intuitively already. If I'm counting on a friend to take me to the airport, my faith in that friend is going to affect my disposition while I'm waiting. Let's say this person is 10 minutes late. No phone call, no text. Hey, I'm running late. Nothing. How do I react? If I have great faith in this person's reliability, I probably won't be very concerned. If I have little or no faith in this person, I'll start getting nervous, start pacing, thinking about taxis. What am I going to do? What's my fallback plan? Why? Because the degree of my faith determines my disposition. So here the disciples are, and they're freaking out. And Jesus calls them on it because their disposition is determined by their faith. If they had lots of faith, they wouldn't be panicking. But since they're panicking, they must have none. This is the practical point. The degree of your faith determines your disposition. But there's another dynamic of faith that we need to talk about to complete the picture. You see, faith, it requires an object. You don't just have faith, right? You have faith in something. There's an object to your faith. In my illustration above, I have or I don't have faith in my friend. And this is important because the value of your faith depends on the object of your faith. The best illustration I've ever heard to drive this home is to think of two people standing on the ice of a frozen lake. You may have heard this before. And one of them stands confident that they'll never fall through. They have all the faith in that ice in the world. And the other person is right on the cusp of a panic attack, fearful that they're going to fall through that ice and drown at any moment. On the one hand, we see again the degree of their faith determines their disposition. Lots of faith, confident and calm. Little faith, panic and uncertainty. But what determines the outcome in this picture? The ice, the object of their faith or lack of faith, is what determines the value of their faith. If the ice is thin, the faith-filled person is in no better position than the one with little faith. His faith is worthless because the object of his faith is worthless. Believe in the ice all you want, it's still not going to hold you up. But if the ice is thick, they're both okay. The value of your faith depends on the object of your faith. You know, there's a lie out there today that says, you know, all that matters is just believing in something. Just be sincere about it. It doesn't really matter what you believe in. Just believe. Just have faith. Well, the world doesn't work that way. I can sincerely believe with all my heart that I can fly. But my belief is not going to matter if I jump out of a window. I can sincerely believe that I can get right with God by working hard enough, by being good enough. 
But that's not going to matter when I face him. So this is the practical point. The degree of your faith determines your disposition, and the value of that faith depends on the object of your faith. So let's look at the theological point. And if there's one point that should stare us right in the face as we read this passage, if there's one reason why Mark included this in his gospel, it's this. The text is telling us who Jesus is. Verse 41 even closes with a disciple's question. Who is this? It's almost as if the readers are left to answer it for themselves. We're back to the question I asked at the beginning. Who is Jesus? And what the text says, what it shows us really, is that Jesus is God. Who alone but God is Lord over nature. In the Psalms, we see several examples of God being Lord over the sea. In Psalm 65, verse 7, it is God who stilled the roaring of the sea. In Psalm 89, verse 9, God rules over the surging sea. In Psalm 106, verse 9, the psalmist remembers how God rebuked the sea. In Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32, it seems to foreshadow our very text today as God stills a storm to a whisper. Who calms the storm in the book of Jonah? Who is Lord over the sea in the book of Job? Who parts the Red Sea in Exodus 13? Not Moses, God. Who creates the sea in Genesis? God. God alone does these things. And in Mark's account, We see Jesus saying and doing what God alone can say and do. Does he stand up and pray to God that the storm is stilled? Does he utter some magic incantation or or cite some scripture? Does he cook up a potion or toss some sacrifice into the sea? No. He just speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey. He actually uses the same words he uses Um, that he uses earlier in Mark's gospel when he casts out demons. He rebukes them in the same way. With the authority and confidence that only God can have, Jesus calms the storm. This is the theological point. Jesus is no mere man. He is very God of very God. But the text doesn't let us get carried away either. He's still very much a man as well, is he not? We find him sleeping in the boat, just like humans do. He doesn't just teleport over to the other side of the lake. He takes a boat like everybody else. He occupies time and space. He can be touched and heard and seen. The text says they they brought him into the boat just as he was. It's almost highlighting the normalcy of it. So the text is really showing this this perfect picture of Jesus' divine and human nature side by side. He is the God-man. God incarnate. So let's look again at Jesus' rebuke, at his words in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You can almost hear him say, don't you know who I am? I told a paralytic that his sins were forgiven and healed him so he walked away. I healed a man with a shriveled hand. I claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. Demons cry out, you are the son of God, before I cast them out. I cleanse the leper by touching him. What does the law of Moses say about you when you touch a leper, when you touch someone or something unclean? You become unclean, not Jesus. 
His touch cleans the unclean. He imparts holiness. We can hear Leviticus ringing in our minds. I am the Lord who makes you holy. How is this not clear to you guys? Don't you see who I am? Here, let me shut this storm up. Do you get it now? Practical point. The degree of your faith determines your disposition. And the value of your faith depends on the object of your faith. Theological point. Jesus is God in the flesh. Put these two together and you wind up with some very good news. Why? As Christians, the object of our faith is a person. It's Jesus. Our faith is not fundamentally in the teachings of Jesus. Our faith is not fundamentally in a set of noble ethics. Our faith is not fundamentally in ourselves, our inner strength, our ability to better ourselves, our wisdom, our intellect. The degree to which we can live up to some set of standards. Hey, if I buckle down properly, I can get right with God. Our faith is not fundamentally in the church. Our faith isn't even in our faith. Oh, I think I have enough faith to to get right with God. I have enough faith to get into heaven. No, it's not our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. Who saves us? What does Paul say? We're saved by God's grace through our faith. Faith is the vehicle, not the object. No, our faith is placed squarely on the capable shoulders of a person, Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is Almighty God. This is why Peter says that our faith is of greater worth than gold. It's because our faith is in God Himself. How can you do better? We're standing on ice 20 miles thick. God, Lord over all creation. God, always faithful, always loving, always just, never turning, beyond comparison, higher than the highest mountain, deeper than the deepest sea. God, speaking the very universe into existence, surpassing all glory and excellence and power, to whom every knee bows and every tongue confesses his lordship. Who will challenge him? Who can frustrate him? Who can defeat him? the one through whom the whole universe hangs together, what surprises him? What wisdom or knowledge does he lack? What has escaped his notice? Nothing. God, this God, that God, is for you. He's for you. With all the unassailable might and power that eludes the mightiest angels and causes the darkest demons of hell to tremble, God is for you. So who can be against you? What can touch you? We're standing on ice 20 miles thick. We stand on the person of Jesus Christ. This is good news. Because the value of our faith depends on the object of our faith. And there's power in that faith. It affects how we live. Because our faith governs our disposition. Go back to the ice analogy. As Christians, we're standing on this rock-solid, immovable ice, Jesus, God himself. And the degree of our faith will determine our disposition. So you can be a Christian of little faith. You're still safe on the ice. You're not going to fall through. But you're just standing there, nervous, and you're worried about doing anything. Or, if you have great faith, you'll go skating. 
You go ice fishing. You'll slide around. You'll have peace. You won't have anxiety. You'll do greater things on the ice than if you had little faith. That missionary Hudson Taylor said, All giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power and presence to be with them. And this frees us. This frees us. It frees us to love. It frees us to not think about ourselves. We don't have to hold on so tight to everything else in the world. We can look outward. We can love others. We're not wrapped up in, man, am I good enough? Do I have enough faith? Am I, you know, is, is the ice thick enough for me here? Are my deeds going to hold me up? Is this program going to save enough people? Is this, is this going to work right? This frees you. It gets your focus outward. Because the object of your faith is God. And notice what this text doesn't say. It doesn't say Jesus is going to calm all the storms in your life. It does not say that. Just live as a Christian for a few weeks and you'll see that this is not the case. Can Jesus do this? Of course he can. And sometimes he will. Will he always do that? Probably not. In fact, as a Christian, Jesus promises you that you will endure hardships. There are trials that we will endure precisely because we are followers of Jesus. Trials that we wouldn't otherwise encounter were it not for our faith. But what does our text show us? The degree of our faith is going to determine our disposition in those hardships. Our faith in him will be what gives us calm in and through the storms. The more faith you have in Jesus, the less the trials of this world will rock you. This doesn't mean that you're going to be stoic or apathetic to your circumstances or smug. It means that you'll be steady because you know the object of your faith. You'll know that nothing befalls you that doesn't first filter through God's hands. You'll know that he is good and he is for you. You won't need to understand or figure out everything as much. Because you'll trust him. When things don't go your way or things fall apart, you're going to stay steady because your faith isn't in an outcome. It's in a person. He's got this. He's not surprised. He is for you. This hasn't escaped his notice. He lacks no power to do what he wills. He is good. Jesus gave up all the treasure and blessing of heaven. Even while you hated him, while you were a sinner, and he died for you. He did that while you were opposed to him. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, Paul writes. And now that you are his, that you've turned to him, how much more then will he keep you? If we call ourselves Christians, Jesus is the object of our faith. And the value of that faith is beyond compare because Jesus is Lord. So as you respond to God's word today, I want us to do a faith check. What rattles you? Why are you so afraid? When do you need to stifle a panic attack? What are your fears? Rejection, suffering, imprisonment, loss of provision, sickness, death, abandonment. 
I could probably write a list of 20 items for myself right now. So let's check our faith. What is the object of our faith? Is it really in the Jesus we know in the Bible, or is it in something else? Are you banking on your own strength or his? Have you little faith? Meditate on the object of your faith. He has no limit. The better you know him, the more you'll trust him. Ask for more faith and act on it. You know, trusting God is one of those weird things where we often grow to trust God more by trusting God more. Right? You have to do it to gain more faith. So maybe there's a particular area right now in your life that he's putting his finger on. Why are you so afraid? Don't you know who I am? Trust me in this. Let me show myself faithful to you again. I'm not out to ruin you. I'm here to remake you into what you were made to be. So as I close, I want to read this hymn that I came across some months ago while I was preparing for an entirely different sermon. Uh, but it's, it's so appropriate for this. It's written by a man named George Keith in the 18th century. And it's called, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said than to you God hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, Jesus, for what you said and did while you were here on earth, that you became one of us. You became man for our sake, for our salvation. And you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. Our faith rests on you. We are in your capable hands, Lord Jesus. We praise you for that great truth. We revel in it, we rejoice in it, we thank you for it. Help us, Lord, to take our stand on it. Help it to affect our behavior. Help us, Lord, to act out and operate in that great faith through our confidence in you and who you are. We love you. We thank you for this time. Help us as we respond now to your word. In your name, amen.
Thank you. It's awesome. Uh, two things to help as we respond and you do the faith check. Um, the band's going to close us in a final song. And so as they play, let this be a time where you're also uh, doing that faith check and responding to that, Lord, what rattles me? What's going on in there? So let the Lord speak. The Holy Spirit will speak things to you.